0: This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, and today I have the great pleasure and honor of speaking with Dr. Elvio Silva, who is a professor in the Department of Pathology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Welcome, Elvio. Uh,
1: Thank you, Pedro. Thank you for giving me the opportunity uh, to express my point of view regarding the origin of ovarian neoplasm.
0: Yes, yeah, so Elvio, obviously uh, uh, a very interesting topic and and obviously you have had tremendous amount of experience in, in this topic. And one of the things that I wanted to start was first, um, I, want, I wanted to hear your opinions regarding some of the proposed theories over the years uh, on the origin of ovarian cancers. And, and certainly, there has been a discussion about the ovulation theory and and radiation therapy, uh, even alcohol and smoking, and of course, finally uh, talcum powder. So, wanted to see what your thoughts were regarding uh, these uh, ideologic uh, factors.
1: Okay, uh, regarding the incessant ovulation theory, I would like to talk, the, refer to it after when I talk about the hormones. Okay. Um, Radiation has been very important for any kind of tumor, not only for the ovarian tumors. Alcohol and smoking also are important, but mainly through inflammation of the immune system. Now, uh, the talk became very popular lately because of some legal issues. Um, I do not believe in the talk theory as the most important theory for ovarian cancer, One reason is that epidemiologic studies have not shown more ovarian cases in areas where people use more TARC. That's one thing. The other thing is that I spent a lot of time, when I heard about this thing becoming important, I spent a lot of time looking for TARC or birefringent particles in ovarian tumors and comparing to other organs like a brain or something that we shouldn't be. I didn't see any difference. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't believe in
0: anything. So not at least certainly from the uh, from the pathologic evaluation of of talcum um, as a, as a, a finding in the in the tissue. Um, and certainly, obviously, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of uh, discussions regarding this as a, as a potential etiologic factor. so you you in, in your mind, as I'm hearing you saying, is that you really don't feel that talcum powder, has uh, an impacting effect on the cause of ovarian cancer?
1: I think most probably like any other cancer, ovarian cancer is a multifactorial problem. But the most important events ending in the ovarian cancer uh, to me are the hormones. Mm -hmm. Uh, So maybe talk, maybe inflammation, maybe other things play a secondary role, but I am sure they're not the most important.
0: Okay, so what what do you consider then are the most uh, potential risk factors for ovarian cancer?
1: Okay, in my opinion, the most important factor uh, is the, the hormonal factor. Uh, we can talk whenever you propose a theory. You can talk about why do you believe that that thing is important, and we end up going to genes or molecular. Or, Uh, I think that when you propose a theory, you should be able to explain with that theory the known facts that we have. For example, uh, everybody knows, and there are many studies showing that contraceptives, breastfeeding, pregnancy, reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. Well, if you think about the hormones, anything that put the ovary to rest, like those three, they reduce the risk. So I think that the hormones are a very good explanation. On the contrary, when you stimulate the ovary, because the ovary is is a machine of uh, producing hormones, so you put the ovary to rest, you reduce the risk. You stimulate the ovary like, uh, for example, the fertility treatment, and they have more ovarian cancer. And that's why I believe in the incessant ovulation. That, that, that was one of the questions at the beginning. I believe it because the ovary is working a lot, producing more hormones, and to me that's the most important factor. And I believe in that just because I can explain all the known factors.
0: Right. Factors. So, and, and Elvia, that, that brings us to obviously the point that has been raised, uh, particularly recently, Um, that ovarian cancer doesn't come from the ovary, but rather from the uh, fallopian tube. So one of the primary points of discussion for this podcast that I wanted to address with you was this issue, particularly of the fallopian tube as the origin of ovarian cancer. Um, Historically, how did this come about? How did this develop? And also, I'm particularly interested in how this evolved regarding BRCA mutations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I believe that everything started around 2001 when Pick found a relationship between BRCA and atypical changes in the fallopian tube, okay? He didn't talk about cancer. It was just the atypical change in the fallopian tube. Well, from there, Chris Crump, a very nice person, good pathology, but sometime I don't know, he woke up from an unusual dream or something, and he <laughs> said that, oh, I know, ovarian cancer is coming from here. And from there, the cells become malignant, and they go to the ovary. But there was a minor problem. Most of the ovarian tumors don't have tumor on the surface. The tumor is inside the ovary, so how do you put it together? So then Bob Korman came with another explanation, which to me is really out of this world. Is when the ovary opens up so the side can get out, the cells in the fallopian tube get in. And that's why you have cancer inside the ovary. Well, to me, that was really crazy. It's impossible. But I said, let's try this. So I said, if this is true, we are going to i'm going to be able to find a lot of cells from the fallopian tube inside the corporal albicans and usually what do they do they they are like endosalpingiosis so i look at a lot of ovarian ovaries normal ovaries looking for endosalpingiosis inside the corporal albicans i never found it. i never found it. so i really don't believe that that thing is a possibility. But like you said, everybody believe it. Why? Well, it's very simple. Between, If you check the literature, between Chris Graham and Bob Kerman, they wrote more than 25 papers. The first author was different, but it was always their group. And they wrote papers in pathology, gynecology, oncology, surgery research, whatever. Any time you go a the journal, there was something about the fallopian tube. Then everybody started believing it. I talk about this a lot. <laughs> so the International Society of GYM Pathology organized a meeting when Dr. Cramp talked about the fallopian tube. Then Dr. Kuhnman talked about the fallopian tube. And then I said that that was a very crazy idea. I didn't believe it. Well, Nobody believed me. That's, it was like that. Then I wrote a paper, and um, the paper was rejected by gynecologic oncology, and was rejected by the American Journal of Surgical Pathology. And some of the reviewers said, "But we don't understand the problem. There is a lot of evidence that is coming from the fallopian tube." I mean, you know, popular beliefs die hard. It's very difficult to to do that, and the. I already gave up on this. I just continued with my theory. And if you want to believe in Santa Claus, that's okay with me. <laughs> I, I am not. I'm sorry. Maybe Santa Claus is not a good analogy because Santa Claus has more possibilities than the fallopian tube. Uh, but, uh, you know, there is an Indian saying that a correct thought will always find its way in the universe. So I believe what I'm saying and uh, it's very interesting. I don't know if you everybody follow the literature. Uh, why Dr. Kram said it's coming from the fallopian tube and you have not seen it, and the reason you have not seen it is because you didn't put the entire fallopian tube. You know, we were just having one cross-section of the fallopian tube. So he created a protocol for the fallopian tube. And now the fallopian tube became the most important organ. We have to submit three or four cassettes. The whole fallopian tube is submitted. And in that case, you are going to find it. And now there is a big problem. Because submitting the entire fallopian tube, now we know that more than half of the cases, you cannot find a stick in case of ovarian cancer. And Dr. Trump realized that. And he wrote a paper in 2015, but instead of having the paper saying, this is a mea culpa article, or I'm sorry I was wrong, he wrote the paper in a way that said, well, there is a dualistic uh, explanation for the high-grade carcinoma and he wrote only one paper. So to support the fallopian theory, there were 25, 30 papers. To say that he was wrong, he wrote one paper. You didn't read it, I'm sorry, but it's in the literature.
0: So, so Elby, one of the things that I wanted to also draw to to that point uh, regarding the fallopian tube theory is that if if it is originating in the fallopian tube as the primary site of disease, why do we not see often infiltration of the wall of the tube while there might be deep invasion in the peritoneum or the ovary itself?
1: Because it's not coming from the fallopian tube. It's very simple, very simple. Uh, I think that the fallopian tube, like I wanna say, I believe uh, a, a lot in multicentricity. And to me, the fallopian tube lesion is part of the multicentric lesion of the ovarian cancer. And that's why the tumor is not invading the... I talked to Dr. Kram about this, and I said, how can you explain that does not infiltrate the wall of the fallopian tube, and then it goes to the peritoneum and infiltrates everywhere. And he said, "Well, maybe there is a resistance in the fallopian tube wall to infiltration." And I said, "Well, when the patients are pregnant, I have an ectopic pregnancy. There is no resistance." And his answer was, well, may, "Maybe pregnancy is worse than cancer." Uh.
0: So, so Elvio, then you mentioned that that you know the, the the concept of of a stick or the serous tubal intraepithelial um, carcinoma. Um, What is the significance of a stick? Um, uh, What do we learn about it? And uh, how does this play a role in the genesis of ovarian cancer, if it does at all?
1: I think it, it does not play a role in the genesis. I think it's part of the ovarian cancer disease as the same thing that you see in the peritoneum of the pelvis and the peritoneum of the abdomen is in the fallopian tube epithelium. The problem is that because it's in the epithelium, you have the idea that that is an insight to lesion, which is completely wrong. And there are already papers showing that gastric cancer or pancreatic cancer can have metastasis in the uh, part of the epithelium of the fallopian tube. But, you know, popular beliefs die very hard. I mean, <laughs> people does not want to change
0: so then now let me ask you, obviously you're, you're not in agreement with this concept of the fallopian tube as, uh, as the origin. Um, as an expert pathologist, with, your, uh, with obviously your, your experience, what is your impression then of how ovarian cancer uh, develops and what are the steps as it pertains to the development of this disease, particularly looking at things like uh, stem cells from the salomic um, mesenchyme, uh, stromal epithelial interaction what's the role of steroid hormones in this development and, and also what's even the role of endometriosis or endosalpingiosis
1: yeah okay well in 2012 I wrote a paper uh, finally having published um, and I also sent a letter to the editor to the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer so. and the uh, I propose a theory that I call it fere ex nihilo, uh, which means almost out of nothing. Because in my opinion, the cells appear in the stroma, uh, in the parenchyma of the ovary, from nowhere. That is how endosalpingiosis starts. And endosalpingiosis is related to the low-grade lesions. And in the high-grade lesions, The malignant cells start the same way, like endosalpingiosis, they appear in the stroma of the ovary and they start growing. Why do they start there? I think is because of hormonal changes that are stimulating the growth of these cells through the mesenchymal epithelial interaction. What is the role of the genes? I'm not sure. Of course, they have to be important. Some people might have a predisposition to this. But to me, the hormones are very important. And the reason why you don't give estrogens to a patient in menopause, you don't give estrogens alone because they are going to end up with endometrial cancer. Well, obviously... Hormones are very important, and they can stimulate the cells. And I think that is what happens in the ovary to me. Uh, now, um, I think that whatever, like I said at the beginning, when you propose a theory, you should be able to explain the facts. In my opinion, a theory of ovarian cancer should be a unique... Uniform theory for most of the tumors. So we should be able to explain endometrioid carcinoma, serocarcinoma, low-grade, high-grade, mucinose. It should have something in common, the theory. You cannot tell me that the high-grade serocarcinoma account of the fallopian tubes and the others I don't know. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense. You know, there they should be some... And with the fair-ethnic theory, it's possible to explain the relationship between them. And also, we should be able to explain the known facts. Again, for example, the contraceptives and reducing the risk, the fertility, increasing the risk, or why ovarian cancer is more common in newly gravidity. And I know that because we just finished a paper on mucinous carcinomas, and uh, I'm saying that the problem is that the ovaries are abnormal, and that's why the patient cannot get pregnant. That's, so any, that theory that I am proposing can explain these things. Another thing, why tumors, serous tumors are more bilateral and mucinous are more unilateral. Well, I know why. But I think I'm going to propose a theory why. So it's related to the normality of the ovary. In the mucinous, there is only one ovary, which is normally the seros are both. So,
0: okay. one of the one of the other often discuss points is you know is there a stepwise progression of benign to borderline tumors to low-grade tumors to high-grade tumors do you do you feel such a sequence is is not well supported by by the evidence that we have today
1: well i think that in the low-grade lesions let's talk about the cystadenoma, borderline, low-grade serocarcinoma, they are related to uh, endosalpingiosis. I have been, uh, I have graphed about endosalpingiosis and the amount of endosalpingiosis that you see in cases with low-grade serocarcinoma is completely different to what you see in high-grade seros, for example. So I think there is a very good relationship and you can go from endosalpingiosis to cystadenoma to borderline. The high grade is different. As I said, I think the cells appear. But, you know, Pedro, everything that I'm saying and everything that uh, I am doing research every day, when I look at the cases, I think that research is real. I'm, I'm not doing the research in the lab. I'm doing the, So I look at the case and I say, well, how can I explain this? And if I don't have an explanation, I try to find an explanation. And when I find an explanation, it has to make sense with all the facts that we know. So that is how I have been doing my research in ovarian cancer. And when I thought, for example, why implants of serous tumors are more invasive during pregnancy? Well, you have a lot of hormones during pregnancy. (laughs) Why the papillary tumor of the fallopian tube, which is similar to the uh, serous borderline? Uh, occur Well, that occur in pregnant patients. So there is a relationship with the hormone. When I realized that, I said, if this is true, I'm going to be able to induce ovarian tumors in animals just with hormones. And I started working with a guinea pig because the guinea pig rarely have ovarian tumors. And I, in 10 months, I induce ovarian tumors. And you know what? The tumors induced by the testosterone were different than the one for the estrogen and the DES. So I really believe, so currently we are doing studies on mass spectrometry measuring hormones, and I think that's going to be a very good proof of uh, the hormones stimulate the stem cells, and the stem cells start proliferating, and you have to believe in multicentricity. Many people don't believe in multicentricity. They say, no, 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 this is a variant tumor with metastasis. But you know what? Everybody, everybody in the GYN-ONC, Community believe in multicentricity. You know when, when you have a bilateral ovarian tumor, you call it a stage one B. Why one? Why don't <laughs> you say two? So it's not a metastasis. That's why you don't say two. So it's not a metastasis. It's a multicentric. So you cannot get it both ways. So you are believe. Everybody believes in multicentricity without saying.
0: Absolutely no, and uh, and you know since certainly there are a, a number as you mentioned a number of potential hypotheses and and ideologies uh for for the origin of the disease and uh and it's encouraging to hear obviously that there is a significant amount of work being done on the theory with regards to estrogen and and how hormones may impact the uh, the uh, origin of, uh, of uh, ovarian cancer. Now, one of the other things also in, in bringing it back to sort of like the daily practice and the daily routine, um, you know, as you know, uh, it's become now standard that uh, patients that are undergoing pelvic surgery often are recommended to have a routine salpingectomy to prevent ovarian cancer. Um, and of course, obviously, I... I this takes us back to the theory of potentially the fallopian tube being the, the, the origin of the disease. Um, what are your thoughts on this practice, and uh, is, is this based on, on solid evidence?
1: Well, Pedro, I already told you that I don't believe that it's coming from the fallopian tube, So, and I explain why we are doing the appendectomy But let me tell you two things. First of all, there are already papers showing that only hysterectomy, only hysterectomy reduces the, uh, the risk of ovarian cancer. So obviously, we are going to see something, but it's probably related to the irrigation of the ovary. I don't know what, but I don't believe that that's going to be the solution, first. And second, everybody, I mean, at least I have seen several cases of patients that had salpingectomy and came back with tumor in the peritoneum. And the salpingectomy was negative, but the patient came back with tumor in the peritoneum. But you know, popular belief that I very hard. Now that people that people are saying, well, maybe it was hidden in the block and you didn't see that. So I don't believe that. Eventually, this thing is going to be abandoned. I think.
0: So, Elvio, what are what are your thoughts moving forward? Where do you think that the the field is going to go? Um, as it pertains to finding the origin of, uh, of ovarian cancer.
1: Okay. Uh, I have this in the closing remarks. Um, I believe that the research in ovary is well behind other areas uh, in the body. Uh, it's not difficult to change this, but, uh, you know, we should learn from history. Great achievements in GYN oncology, great achievements. For example, HPV, fantastic. Today we have a vaccine for HPV. We can do prevention. How did it start? HPV started in the 70s when Leo Koss, a cytologist in New York, said, huh, there are some cells that are different, and he called it coilocyte. We didn't know anything about this. Everybody started looking, and he was correct. So from the coilo side came the study of the virus. And from the virus came, and then Surhausen discovered the different types. It was the Nobel Prize and the vaccine. But everything started with few cells that were different. Another thing that is important in GYN, for example, papillary Carcinoma of the endometrium, it was described in the 80s by the Stanford group. And they said, hey, this tumor is popular. It's different than the regular adenocarcinoma. And then the clinicians said, hey, this is a very bad tumor. And from there, you started with a chemo. And now the uh, prognosis of the serocarcinoma changed. But it started when somebody said, hey, this is different. Now... Uh, the only research that I think that we are doing today in the ovary is with the next generation sequencing. So everybody gets a piece of tumor. And the, but to me, that is, is starting at the end. The end product is the cancer. You have to start at the beginning. In order to improve the treatment, we need to understand how the lesion develops. And in order to do that, you have to go to the beginning. In that case, we are going to be able to do prevention. Now, I was in the WHO group in the 2012 uh, when they were preparing for the 2014 book, And I proposed for the ovary to separate the high-grade serous carcinoma in the different types: undifferenciated, TCC, transition cell carcinoma, microcystic, uh, intracystic, diffuse invasion, because when you look at with microscope, the tumors are different. Uh, the motion, again, I lost again, and the, the motion that prevailed was, no, that's going to confuse everybody. We have to get uniformity. So anything that is p B53 positive, is going to be called serocarcinoma. I think that that is crazy because the tumors are saying, hey, we are different. And we are saying, no, you are not different. No, they are all serocarcinoma. carcinoma." And you know, in the seventies, in the eighties, serous carcinoma was papillary serous carcinoma. But some tumors are solid. You cannot call a solid tumor papillary. So what did they do? They dropped the papillary. Today we don't have papillary serous carcinoma. We have serous carcinoma. And in the seventies we had serous carcinoma from the fallopian tube, from the ovary, and from the peritoneum. Today we have. They said no, no, no. We are not sure. So let's call it pelvic. So we have zero carcinoma from the pelvic, only one tumor from only one area, and that's it. That, to me, is the problem with the research. I think that we need to separate the different tumors. And again, look at history. The most advanced area of medicine, in my opinion, is hemato- hematopathology, hematology. In the 70s, we have two lymphomas, large cell and a small cell, that's it. Then they came the T-cell, the B-cell, and blah, blah. Today we have 20 different T-cell lymphomas and 45 different B-cell lymphomas. Each one has different flow cytometry, different genes, uh, different prognosis. That is how we advance. Same thing with the kidney, renal tumor. There was only one, renal cell carcinoma. Today we have 19 different types of renal cell carcinoma. But the over is the opposite. Instead of having, we started with four or five types, now we have only one. That is, we cannot progress because we have to separate the tumors and give to the researchers a piece of tumor that say, hey, this tumor is different from this tumor. Then they are going to find different genes. Then we are going to have different treatment.
0: Elvio, this has been fascinating. I uh, always appreciate your, your honesty, and, uh, and uh, obviously uh, it, is, uh, it is a great learning experience uh, uh, listening to you and speaking with you. I want to thank you for your time and uh, for sharing these thoughts with us.
1: Okay, well, thank you, you. Thank you, Pedro, for giving me the opportunity.